0: Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi-series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night A DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. This week's episode focuses on the Belleville Three and the birth of techno in Detroit. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined once again by my buddy, Ryan Harkness, we're continuing our discussion of Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. And today, we're talking techno. Welcome to Detroit, Ryan. Ah, I'm excited to be here. It's been a long, winding road. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But we are here now. And this like house is where the modern scene begins. And techno is where the modern scene really takes off into something new. They describe techno in some pretty big terms, like here's a quote from the book. Techno is an ambitious son of a bitch. It wants to free itself from the baggage of all the world's previous music and take a few brave steps into the future. And then one one last quote, and I'll let you respond to this. In a city wiped out by a loss of faith and progress, techno tried to construct a new belief in the future and created a new blueprint for dance
2: music, pure, modernist, and synthesized soul. Thoughts? Uh, I mean, the only thing that I can really say is that it feels like house is almost like a, uh, uh, a, a the, the logical endpoint of disco, like disco turning into house and then house is this thing, while techno is, is kind of this launching pad for all this new kind of, of, of electronic music that's really separate from, from everything that kind of came before, obviously you have influence, but, uh, it's, it's really often to the brave new world of, of, of dance music and, it, and, and, and it really gets rid of a lot of the, the past influence or maybe what we say it, it, it is kind of uh, disco's, uh, dance floor ethos that has been holding strong even through the death of disco. So I, I think it's just kind of, uh, at at this point house and disco it was it was kind of getting to a point where something really exciting had to happen and techno was the beginning of that
1: i think that's a fair enough assessment and and they go in quite a bit to the backgrounds of our protagonists in this story, which are essentially three guys, the Belleville Three, Juan Atkins, Derek May, and Kevin Saunderson. Although you always got to mention Eddie Folks, who's kind of the Belleville Fourth, <laughs> who was involved early on. And uh, was pushed out for whatever reason, and and it went on for decades. Where if those three guys were on a comp, Eddie would not be on a comp. If those guys got to do a European tour, Eddie would not be invited. So, got to give a
2: shout out to Flash Eddie there. Yeah, um, he he pops up a couple of times in some documentaries, and you never get the real skinny uh, uh, on the on the beef between them. But it always seemed like Eddie is is a bit more willing to tell the story with warts and all. Uh, there's there's some interesting uh, tales. That, that have a little bit more of a criminal element than maybe the other Belleville 3 will allow anything uh, allow you know their, their legacy to be tarnished with. And is it because Eddie's a little bit too street? I don't know, but it's he kind does of what it seat seems seat
1: like to be the most street of them. And that's another thing they, they get into the sociological background here. An and interesting thing about techno, like house is coming from the inner city. It's clubs in the city. Uh-huh. and it's DJs and clubs in the inner city. And then kids in the suburb, not even in the suburbs, just on the south side of Chicago, getting their hands on cheap equipment, and making records to feed those DJs. These kids, now the Balboa Three are all black, African-American, but they're in... Belleville, which is an affluent suburb of Detroit, and Detroit was hollowed out after the oil shocks of the early 70s and the and the riots of the 60s. And really, frankly, the whole New Deal housing policies were pushing people to suburbs from the end of World War II on. It's just that it became obvious that it had literally gutted one of America's great cities in the 70s. And so by the 80s, it's this urban wasteland. I mean, just literally falling apart. Houses are being burned down every night. It's it's very much like the Bronx in the early 70s, but it's the whole city. There's no Manhattan next door. There's just, you know, suburbs like Belleville and Gross Point and places like this. And all three of these kids are pretty affluent. And they all moved to Belleville. And at least two of them, Derek May and Kevin Saunderson, have some pretty charged Racial awakenings when they move there. You know, Kevin Saunderson has racist white neighbors strewing trash across his yard, that kind of stuff. And Derek May, and you know, gets called the N word for the first time in his life and says he didn't even know what it meant like this first time he'd heard it. And, and which is kind of staggering for any American to have not heard, you know, our national word. But <laughs> Derek May then has this sort of reverse racism racism experience where he sees a kid that he hung out with in summer camp, sits down with him, and it's a white kid, thinks nothing of it, and the the small group of black kids in this overwhelmingly white school start yelling at him, hey man, why are you sitting with the honkies? And he realizes that, you know, he's never experienced voluntary segregation before, but he realizes he's gonna have to participate in it. And he de- develops this antipathy to the common run or not the common run but he doesn't want to be like those black kids that he sees that are coming from poor neighborhoods that are fussing and fighting and and you know acting like clowns in his perception and so this lays the groundwork for these guys who want to be different who want to disassociate themselves from the things that they're expected to do and like as black kids so
2: yeah, it's oh. interesting. He calls it a self-limiting perspective as, as to, to the, uh, the, the self-segregation that he experienced at school, and uh, it, it's it's interesting to, to think about how much influence you know that that simple decision he had to to not fall into stereotypes and to not do what he was supposed to do because it really led around to being more open musically and uh, you know we see this again and again in all the all the past episodes guys like Africa bambara like the, the most successful guys were the ones that were willing to cross those color lines and not stay with within their lane when it came to what kind of music they were willing to listen to or promote or or collaborate with
1: yeah absolutely and, and, um, and I think that that genesis that sort of philosophical or comfort genesis I mean at one point on the one hand looking back at it from the perspective of 2020 I sort of like want to chide Derek May for being this neoliberal who's like you know kind of lifting himself up by the bootstrap, separating himself from his community and going forward. But on the other hand, the guy made great music and made this huge impact on the world. So I uh, can't diss him too much, but it's it's sort of a different view, I think, the way that was seen when the book was first written in the late 90s and the way people might see it today. But let's talk a little bit about the history of Detroit Musically. Detroit's one of the major American music cities, right up there with Memphis and New Orleans, I think, in Accomplishment, You know, a close second to the big boys of New York and L.A. It's, it's the home of John Lee Hooker. Well, it's not the home. It's the adopted home. You know, the classic Southerner migrating to the big city to play electric blues. It's the home place of Aretha Franklin. And, you know, before Aretha was a superstar on Atlantic Records or even a, a wannabe superstar on Columbia Records, she was a gospel star with her father, C.L. Franklin, Franklin in Detroit. It's the home of Motown, where Barry Gordy built the biggest independent record company in the history of America, the biggest African-American-owned business in the history of America. I mean, you cannot overstate the accomplishments of Barry Gordy and Motown. It's the home of George Clinton, the adopted home of New Jersey's George Clinton and the P-Funk, Parliament Funkadelic Empire. And that's definitely a big influence on these guys, whether they want to say it or not. I mean, you know, Derek May does acknowledge the influence of Bernie Worrell's synthesizer baseline on Fleshlight electrifying mojo the dj radio dj that was kind of their mentor he was starting with p-funk as his basis the whole afrofuturism idea is very consistent you know the techno in a lot of ways follows up on the afrofuturism ideas of p-funk which followed up on the afrofuturism of sun Ra. so lots of connections even for something that's a new start detroit's also the birthplace of punk with mc5 and the stooges so Big music town, but all of that was gone by the time these guys come around. Motown pulled up roots and went to LA. Aretha Franklin was still living in Detroit, but she was essentially an international artist by that point. George Clinton had fallen into crack addiction and P Funk, you know, had long ago relocated and was living on the road endlessly. And, you know, all the punk bands were <laughs> crushed into the ground by this point. So all but they these guys... still had the electrifying mojo. Exactly. That's exactly where I was going. This is a guy. DJ Charles Johnson, who moved up from Arkansas, kept himself anonymous, Never, still to this day, as far as I know, hasn't allowed himself to be photographed, but he, he, he ran the Midnight Funk Association and, you know, ran this crazy radio show. And once again, just like in Chicago, it's this connection to radio and... You know, background of P-Funk, that's that's their starting point, but also played a lot of movie soundtracks, loved British synthesizer pop like Human League and New Order, played a lot of classical. Uh, He's the key reason Prince was big in Detroit early on and stayed big. And he also introduced him to Kraftwerk, which, you know, we'll talk about Kraftwerk in a minute as – possibly the first techno group. But first, let's let let's start hearing some music. This is Cybertron from the early 80s. This is Clear. This is Juan Atkins' first group, and it's pre-techno. This probably would be best described as electro, comparable to Africa, Bambada's Planet Rock. So let's hear Cybertron's Clear. was Cybertron's Clear um, which actually made the charts the black dance charts in Billboard magazine in the early 80s and Juan Atkins is this kid who's playing garage bass and drums and funk groups hears synth music on the Electrify mojo and becomes obsessed then he meets this crazy Vietnam vet in a community college class or in a college class and this guy Rick Davis who's got what they call an Aladdin's cave worth of equipment. And he forms this group, Cybertron, which actually beats Africa Bambaataa to the punch on putting out an electro record. And it's also a hit locally. It sells 10,000 copies as a single in Chicago and Detroit. And that's because of radio play from Electrify and Mojo. And I assume that they got some love in Chicago on the radio as well.
2: And there's a little bit of of back and forth that we that we read about uh, with, with the whole Belleville three going and checking out. The Chicago scene and uh, basically Derek May and and Kevin Saunderson uh, trying to get their records played in Chicago Juan Atkins not as much he, he, he found the whole gay scene thing a little bit too uncomfortable uh, that's that's uh, taking his words down a couple notches <laughs> into, into a more decent area he wasn't too into it but uh, some of those guys were going back and forth and checking out Chicago
1: yeah absolutely and and. Um, And also a single selling 10,000 copies, an independently released single, that's huge. Like Husker Du on SST sold 20,000 copies in 1984, and that got him in Rolling Stone magazine. So the scale of what these kids are doing with House and, and the Chicago Detroit markets, House and Techno, is way bigger than um any other underground scene going on in the u.s at this point so right from the get-go um even with this first group cybertron Juan atkins is 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 making his mark even though it's it's only felt in these regional undergrounds and you know the book goes into craft at this point and you know points out that they were producing techno while detroit was still selling cars and craftwork is this german group that is and and I got to say I love 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 the fact that Kraftwerk and Giorgio Moroder are two of the biggest influences on African American dance music of this era because they you know Kraftwerk especially is the widest of the widest groups like you could possibly get their entire aesthetic was designed to deliberately go against the sort of Che Guevara chic that rock stars had cultivated since the early 60s. You know, it's this total button down. They tried to dress like fashion store mannequins, you know, with their hair greased down. I mean, the whole Devo look copped from Kraftwerk. And they were originally part of the Krautrock scene. Or and you know kind taged. of unwil-
2: unwillingly pushed into that because of the of the producers uh, and and kind of uh, the people that they were that were around them at the time kind of pushed them into that. Well, that, their rhythm that. section quit to form the group now, which now is possibly the
1: most conceptually adventurous of all the krautrock groups. But they were drums and guitars, so they were still stayed analog, even though they were doing a lot of trance type stuff. That but Kraftwerk then turns lemons into lemonade they go electronic they go full drum machine full synthesizer and um create this unique blend autobahn is a hit this 20 minute long song about driving you know about the tedium this this a symphony to the tedium of driving in a car on the Audubon, and it becomes a disco head. And it's, you know, it's classic. They've got a quote in this book that um, a Motown sound engineer who worked with Norman Whitfield, one of the great Motown producers, he flew into Europe to mix their album Man Machine. He just assumed they would be black because he thought they were funky. And, you know, it's. <laughs> It's crazy. I mean, and they are, they've, they've had this huge influence. We've already talked about what a big influence they were on Africa. It's like Bambada. a
2: redefinition of what funk funky
1: is, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, they, they spawn this whole genre of synth groups, Devo, Human League, Ultravox, Yellow, all over Europe and the U S and England. And, you know, um, As the guys say in the book, if you were a black teenager looking to get as far away from the culture America expected you to enjoy, this was it Morse code from Mars. Not just Kraftwerk, but the whole Electrify Mojo playlist. So these kids, you know, even though Juan Atkins is kind of precocious with this band, um, Cybertron. He's still a kid living in his mom's house, and he's a little bit older than Derek May. Derek May gets invited over there because Juan's little brother has a car and reefer and all this stuff. That you know, little Derek May is like, I was a kid that liked to, you know, do what my mom told me and play baseball, and these guys think I'm a total dork. But very quickly, he distinguishes himself and sort of becomes Juan Atkins' protege, and learns how to produce records from watching Juan do this and Cybertron falls apart because Rick Davis wants to go back into a rock direction. And so, you know, Juan forms this group, uh, a new group. Um, I'm blanking on the name. What's, what's modern. What's, can you help me on this one? Uh, oh, my man. Ah, this is memory, memory, memory. Oh,
2: well, anyway, he forms a new group that does no no UFOs and He's got so many, so many of those uh, so many of those aliases early on in the day. Yeah, it's it's um, yeah, it's one of the
1: interesting things that all these guys do. Derek May is gonna release records as Rhythm is Rhythm and May Day. Kevin Saunderson is gonna be inner city and uh, you know Reese and a number of other aliases. So they always like this they sort of see themselves as producers creating these anonymous groups, just very much in the spirit of, I guess that goes all the way back to Phil Spector. Um, you know, but definitely something we see with the high high energy guys in England around the same time. So, you know, they, they, um, put out this stuff and, 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 before we leave Cybertron behind, they they put out you know three four singles. They have the hit with Clear. They make an album Enter, and then they do a final city final single called Techno City and kind of uh, give it the name. Although they're still really playing more electro than than techno. And around this time, Atkins and May start learning how to DJ together. And and I think this is really important that these guys are not club DJs there's not an underground club scene in Detroit and so these guys are very much bedroom producers and are seeing this stuff in a very intellectual way they're devouring these house tracks they're getting from Chicago but like you said one Atkins was too homophobic to get into the scene and so you know Derek May's going down and dancing and getting that sensory overload But then they're bringing it back and listening it to Juan Atkins' bedroom over and over and over again, and really intellectualizing and discussing what's going on into these records, which is pretty funny when you think about guys like Jesse Saunders back in Chicago that are just stealing a baseline and, you know, getting the preset drum beat they've got on their drum machine psh, hit record and you know getting the record pressed up it tracks records and off they go you
2: know there's definitely an important uh, element to the development of, of of the music in detroit in the fact that there wasn't a huge dance floor uh culture in the city because as a dj i can't tell you how uh, you, you try really hard not to fall into this but uh you know at a certain point when you're listening to music and you're a dj and you've got you've got a sets to play and stuff like that you're just listening to it you're <laughs> like is this good for the dance floor is this good? For the dance floor and you take it and you reject it just based on that. And there's so much music that, uh, you know, if it's just not hard enough or if it just doesn't have enough of a groove, you immediately just throw it in the in the reject pile and uh, this is this is something that's going to happen to like anybody who who gets into to DJing or or, or dance floor uh, directed music, and if you don't have a dance floor, all of a sudden you're able to open yourself up a little bit more. You know those uh, you know track eight or nine on the Kraftwerk CD are more interesting to you. You can listen to that 60 minute ambient electronic composition, and and really get into it and feel it. And and to a certain degree, I feel like these guys uh, a lot of their ideas came from from the, just from the fact that, you know, you weren't just looking for that funky town uh, drum loop to to take, to put it and to play it in front of like a bunch of uh, cracked out ravers, you know, it was, it was, <laughs> they, they, they took the time to percolate, uh, percolate and listen to the music and get into something maybe a little bit more. And I hate to say this word because sophisticated, they got a little bit more sophisticated with it. Cause it wasn't just about, you know, turning something around and hearing it on the dance floor and going nuts to it. Absolutely, and let's hear one of these songs. This is uh, Derek May's "Rhythm
1: Is Rhythm," "Nude Photo," which which is sometimes cited as the first techno song, the first thing to take all original synthesized elements. No, we're not basing this off of a bass line, We're not sampling somebody else's drum loop. This is this is a uh, creation from Whole Cloth. This is Rhythm and Rhythm's "Nude Photo." was Derek May as Rhythm is Rhythm doing nude photo, which some some call the first techno song. And uh, the interesting thing is that, you know, these three guys, Juan Atkins is called the originator. Derek May is called the innovator. And then Kevin Saunderson is called the elevator because he's the guy who had the really massive mainstream success. He's the guy who's going to have top 10 hits in England and others. And the thing about Kevin Saunderson is he's from Brooklyn and he's, even after he moves to Detroit, he keeps going back to New York city. So he's been to the loft. He's been to paradise garage. I keep wanting to say garage, (laughs) but uh, he's, so he's seen the way these dance floors work and, You know, Derek May will tell you, you know, I felt like Gary Newman started something he didn't finish, or I was the successor to Depeche Mode. Like, Derek May very much sees himself as a successor to these Euro synth groups, whereas Kevin Saunderson is like, to me, I liked that they we're doing it such that one guy could do it all himself. I liked the idea of being able to do it all myself. I liked that they had synthesized instruments, but the music itself wasn't really where I was coming from. And to me, Kevin Saunderson is more of a garage or a house style producer. You know, his songs frequently have vocals. The soul element is impossible to ignore, but he's seen, you know, because he came up with these guys, played football with Derek May, beat Derek May up in high school, you know, Learned at their feet, and the one thing that's funny, like it's so classic. These guys are so bougie. Kevin Saunderson couldn't figure out how to DJ, so he goes sneaks off to Ohio and pays for lessons, <laughs> which it's like, it's like knowing what where you know the story about Robert Johnson and the crossroads. Well, it turns out Robert Johnson went off to you know,
2: take guitar lessons in the big city. Like it's it's classic that the the kids... yeah, you got to keep that kind of stuff hush hush.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's not exactly going down to the crossroads and making a deal for the devil but it does show i mean you know you got to do what you got to do and he definitely has become he definitely knows how to dj now and there is a scene in detroit there's this this high school party scene and it's classic 80s stuff i mean it's it's affluent black kids dressing in polo and and uh, charging twenty five dollars a head at some of these dances, so some of these kids, you know, whose parents are wealthy, they're banking on on these high school parties, and and they contrast with these jitter jitterbug parties that are happening in the in the more downtrodden areas of Detroit. You know, it's the forerunner of Detroit's modern booty based scene, and you know they say in the book that Detroit had been quote washed in a wider strain of disco than New York or Chicago. Lots of Euro disco, um, you know the Italo disco stuff. They were into danceable new wave like the B-52s and the Talking Heads. Uh, they love the synth pop like we've talked about. Um, you know, But they also occasionally are, are intermingling with these kids in, in, in the rougher side of town who are doing electro and then later on are going to do hip-hop. But the, the, the scene never comes together into anything comparable to what Chicago has and definitely nothing like what's going on in New York or London. So it's these parties and gyms and you know the kind of places you have proms and the the book brings in don was of was not was and and also had a group called orbit um and you know had local hits and i don't think of don was as as a techno guy and i don't think of him as a Detroit guy because i think of him as the producer for the rolling stones and whatever dinosaurs he's gotten rich and famous producing but in the 80s this guy was doing these local mix records and remixing them on the radio with dj ken collier and um it's also funny that the belleville three put together first they put together a, a, a a dj team that gets smoked <laughs> that's not not even smoked close to by the,
2: the disco guys on a regular yeah. basis <laughs> they're,
1: so they're totally the you know the guys getting kicked sand kicked in their face on the local scene so they put together a radio show um on wjlb the street beat that was that was modeled on um the the stuff that's going on in chicago and then they get eclipsed there again by a guy called
2: the Wizard on WDRQ, who's kind of more hip-hop based. And so the Wizard um, ends up being Jeff Mills, who is one of the greatest techno DJs of all time. Somebody does, doesn't really get his due in this book. It's it's one of those times where you kind of feel like maybe they were rushing through when they left some stuff out. Jeff Mills is is one of the guys who really made three turntable, four turntable DJing uh, more than just a gimmick. He would actually really, really go to work. And if you listen, like once again, like, uh, you got. The uh, out of this chapter if you're going to google two things google the electrifying mojo and check out what he was doing in 1982 and then check out the wizard and what he was doing in like 1985 and it is just a mishmash of everything because it was hip-hop and it was a lot of that uh, africa bambada style electro sound as well but uh you know if if the the pop had enough clang in it uh, he would be playing pop in there too pitched up and going crazy and it's just uh it's a that's that's the whole thing about detroit to me is it's a mass melting pot of everything and I, I feel like there's a lot of name dropping going on that that, that tells people about you know a, a lot of uh, you know stuff like new order and human league uh talking heads and stuff like that they get their props but it's never to me it's never really they're 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 never integrated the way that maybe some of the other artists are as far as their importance to it's like disco had all the funk and 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 it all rolled into into house but i feel like the techno picked up a lot of this weirder uh, stuff from depeche mode and 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 yellow and, and all of these other kind of strange uh, alternative indie rock slash electronic acts that that never really get their due in the history of everything because this is where this is the melting pot where it all happens and those guys were being listened to on electrifying mojo all the time
1: yeah, absolutely. And I've I've, you know, had this conversation with Michelangelo Matos and hopefully we'll talk about his great book, The Underground is Massive later. But he, you know, asked him why wasn't why weren't Chicago industrial bands covered in your book, you know, groups like ministry and stuff. And he's like, that's not dance music. And, and I just wanted my head wanted to explode because so I'm like, I'm sorry, dude. I was in dance clubs in the 80s. That was dance music. You know, Ministries pre-industrial stuff, the early stuff, is absolutely what people were dancing to. Same with the B52s. Same for New Order. The stuff was ruling dance floors. I mean, you know, yeah, the stuff that. And I think, you know, I understand why they do it. For one thing, this is a tome. It's, you know, 500 pages long. There's hundreds of people named in the index. So they can't get to everything. They can't even tell the story in chronological order um, because there's just so many things happening everywhere. And I think that just like they didn't talk about, say, MFSB or the Philly you know Sigma Studios that much, because there are other books about those guys. There's plenty of books about synthpop. There's plenty of stuff about New Order. The DJs are the ones that until this book came along and you know, the last twenty years this has changed. But at one point in the eighties and nineties, DJs just didn't get written about as musicians. So I, I get the DJ focus. But yeah, like you said, Jeff Mills and his group Underground Resistance with um, Mad Mike and and I can't remember the third guy You know, the second generation of Detroit techno is a big deal. And, um, you know, Richie Houghton from Windsor, Ontario, he barely gets mentioned as well. And his group Plastic Men was to me sort of the definitive 90s rave act.
2: Yeah, he was uh, like that that entire second generation uh, just just to put everything into into context on a timeline uh, when we were talking about cybotron that's that's like around 19, 1981 around 1985 everything's starting to pick up and 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 you're having uh, you're having some bigger hits coming out and everything like that but everything really really goes kind of crazy in 88. And in '88, that's where you have new guys like Richie and and Jeff Mills coming out with Underground Resistance, and the old guys, the old guards, the the uh, the Belleville Three, they're so busy playing in Europe that this next generation kind of comes in and keeps Detroit techno alive. And there was there was friction that was going on there, uh, especially when it comes to Richie Houghton, because him and John Aquaviva were were basically two white kids from Canada that were crossing the border to come into Detroit, and and they had the Gall or the or the uh, the ego to put out one of their first records. They put a sticker on it that said the future sound of Detroit. And obviously that pissed off a, uh a certain number of people and it's still a a big issue to this day. There's, there's clips of, of Derek May. There was an interview back in, I think something like 20, 2010 or something like that, where they were asking, uh, Derek May, what he thought about that future, future sound of techno and, and Richie Hotton and, and, and Derek was pretty nice about it. He was like, you know, Richie and them, uh, obviously proved that they, they, they cared about techno and they cared about Detroit and they, they weren't posers or anything else like that. But this was kind of before, uh, you know white privilege was was even a term that we could kind of talk about and but you could tell that he was kind of trying to say you know it kind of felt like like the white kids coming in and trying to claim something that 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 belonged to them
1: yeah and this was the time when Chuck d was you know on public enemy's biggest record calling elvis a racist which i disagree with but you know chuck had his reasons for saying that and the phenomenon he was describing of elvis getting rich and famous and overshadowing black artists who's, who who his music yeah that happens over and over again in american history i like to think it's gotten less awful but of course people were pissed when Richie houghton comes over from windsor ontario and and you know bigfoot's on the scene and it did take him a while to earn that but let's hear from our sponsor and when we come back we'll hear how techno crossed the pond one of the quotes in the book that i didn't read at the beginning is a guy saying there's a million people in detroit and maybe 10 of them have heard of techno and that was from 1990 and and so there's this phenomenon where despite the electrify mojo's radio show which is more than the music had in a lot of cities i mean I wish the, like, Fire Mojo was within earshot of me when I was a kid. I would have been much hipper and happier. Um, but it still wasn't a mass phenomenon in Detroit. There was eventually one underground club that opened up for a brief while around this period. Yeah,
2: 88 um, to 89, the music industry lasted a whole year,
1: and that was it. Yeah. And, you know, they've got these house parties, but at first they have to go to Chicago really to sell their records. And, and Derek may creates his masterpieces, you know, strings of life and, and nude photo and others. Those were aimed at. um, And in fact, Frankie Knuckles named strings of life. um, The great Chicago house DJ and, and, you know, Ron Hardy and Frankie Knuckles, that was the target audience Derek May was going for. And that's who he got to play his records. And initially Techno was just seen as house music. The first time they show up in a British music magazine, they're described as house fanatics, and they're they're talking about their music in terms of house. And it's only when a British music producer, another high energy guy, or a northern soul guy, I'm sorry, Neil Rushton, who's a Birmingham northern soul DJ, the house market has already been grabbed up and licensed in england and and people are selling records the whole acid house thing is beginning to happen in england and we'll talk in the next couple episodes about how this happened how it gets there but it's happened and rushton sees an opportunity nobody's putting out these licensing these records from Detroit and and he puts together a comp he gets in touch with Derek May you know finds his address on the back of a letter calls him or whatever and they get in touch Derek May puts together a compilation it's originally going to be called The House Sound of Detroit but the record company figures out well you know if we take it and call it techno exclamation point the new dance sound of Detroit we've got a genre this is a much bigger deal and so this 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 split between house and techno is kind of imposed later on by a record company
2: looking to move units and there was one atkins who was the one guy who kept on calling it techno and it's funny because it goes back to his cybertron days with with rick davis who was a uh, you know, the more you read into him, the more he, he's a crazy character. Uh, apparently, he's running around now in a, in a, in a green cape and a, and a mask looking like uh, the Mandalorian. Uh, and and that, that's his, that, that that's his whole character now. But back in the day, he was big into, uh, you know, a lot of science fiction literature. And and he was the one that kind of got one Atkins onto the idea of, Uh, of of a lot of these like techno landscape ideas when you're writing your music you want to imagine this this so so i think rick davis is 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 the one that kind of influenced juan atkins to decide that his music was more of a techno sound like or he was the one pushing it all the other guys Derek may and and kevin saunderson they both self-identified as house uh, in the press a lot talking about house and, and being part of the house sound, but it was Juan Atkins that would always kind of say, ah, oh, you know, techno and he'd throw it out there. And, and, and he, that was, that was where the thread came for the label to take it and, and, and use the word techno and, and, and thank God, because I think the only other alternative that we had, Derek May was saying it should be called uh, uh new soul or something like that. It was just not as good. Techno is, <laughs> Techno is so much better.
1: Yeah, techno is definitely better. And you know, when I was coming up, and and later discovered that the club I'd gone to in Dallas while I was scouting colleges was one of the first places in Dallas playing house and techno. I didn't know the term house; we just called it techno. And I don't know if that was before or after. I think it was. That was definitely before the the acid house explosion in Britain. Um, you know, so I was using techno conflated with house willy nilly through this whole era and i'd never heard the term electro we called africa bambada techno as well so it's funny how these things come out but the thing about derek may and this term is once the british press starts asking him for interviews they're really blown away by this i mean these are the kind of middle class aspiring kids that have ideas that that see themselves as as thinkers and and self-conscious artists and he becomes like the pete townsend of techno i mean it's like you know he's calling his music house or new soul and then you know as soon as he gets an interview request i want to talk to you because you're the king of techno he's dropping the theories about the dystopian detroit and the synthesized future and and creates this whole intellectual edifice it's really interesting to see this happening i mean we've You've seen it happen a couple other times in music it's very much analogous to what happened in the 60s when you know serious writers started saying the beatles had a- aeolian clusters in their music or you know somebody like Ian winner would interview pete townsend for six hours and publish 500 pages of it in rolling stone magazine and and it they point out that techno is the first point at which dance music in the modern era becomes self-conscious
2: yeah that makes sense and it's uh it it, it is kind of you do have to i feel like chicago everything kind of happened naturally and then they didn't even kind of realize when people from the uk were coming over to interview them while well, well maybe in detroit there's a little bit of a uh, of a codified story that was that was formulated and and uh, and, uh and, and and then just sent out there just just proof proof being you got guys like eddie folks who who got purged from the purged from the 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 tale of techno you know and the the official story is the Belleville three and their tale and uh, all the messiness around it is, is something that you really have to dig more to get into.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and the authors are not shy about their biases. like they, 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 they go, this is a quote, while it's easy to get carried away by the intellectual baggage, bear in mind that techno's poetic search for the soul of the machine is just a brainy way of saying, we wanted to make funky dance music on cheap synthesizers. <laughs> so they're they're trying to pull this discussion back to the dance floor and and you know keep the the intellectual stuff out of there. And um, let's hear a little bit more. Let's hear Kevin Saunderson. This is the elevator. This is his group, Inner City, and their song The Good Life, which reached they they call it a number one in the UK, but everything I'm looking at it says it topped out at number four. Either way, it sold six million copies. Massive hit. This is oh, Inner City. Six City's- million. Good life, yeah, six million.
0: Let me take you to a place I know you want to go. Is a good
1: Saunderson's inner city doing their song Good Life, which which uh, came close to topping the English charts in, in the late 80s. And the funny thing is, apparently the techno, new sound new dance music sound of Detroit compilation didn't do very well. The follow-up utterly flopped, even though songs like String of Life became anthems during you know what they call the Summer of Love in England um, in the late 80s. They weren't selling as many units. It, it took Kevin Saunderson, and frankly, I mean, do you agree with me that that Saunderson's essentially
2: doing house or garage here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, uh, his his even bigger hit, Big Fun. It's not techno. It's it's almost more pop than house even. So it's funny that Kevin Saunderson is is the elevator of techno, but he did it by going commercial, and then just rising. You know, the rising tide lifts all boats. And and the whole thing about Kevin Saunderson is he's got tons of, of side projects and, and lots of releases. And a lot of those are techno. And you listen to him DJ and it's definitely techno. Uh, but he knew how to write a hit song and he wasn't afraid to do it. So I think what happened is that, you know, his hit songs really allowed, really brought things up. And, and this is something that the book kind of touches on a little bit, but you watch some more interviews and you hear some more stories from the guys uh, from the Belleville three is that they ate a lot of crap uh, through the early years, pushing, pushing a sound that wasn't, wasn't too big. You know, you hear all the stories about, you know, artists going to Chicago and, and getting, uh, and getting DJs there to play their stuff. And and it happened for them, but it sounds, sounds like it was a bit harder for them to, to, to get that push. And there was a lot of years where it didn't quite click. You're talking about, you know, techno, the, the techno compilations kind of being a bit iffy, it, it took a while for all of this to get its feet. And I think that Kevin Sanderson having those early hits and kind of uh, giving that extra little bit of credibility, um, at least in to an industry that was ready to turn its back on all of the Detroit sound and all the techno sound was really essential towards it. it, you know, just being allowed to stick around long enough to finally blossom.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And remember, this is around the same time when the city fathers of Chicago whether on purpose or not basically kill the house scene by with restrictive you know laws against uh, uh, after hours clubs and the scammers at tracks records kind of eat their own tail and and there's limitations to that and Jesse Saunderson's deal with Geffen doesn't really get anywhere. So this music, it's very much the torch had to be passed because Detroit never achieved a critical mass to have a self-sustaining scene. And Chicago's scene that had been so vibrant and so popular, I mean, it held off hip hop for years in Chicago, um, which Techno was never able to do in Detroit. I mean, all through this, you know, what's going on in hip hop is impacting. In their audience and they're having to compete with it. And so it's very much like when hip hop almost dies in the Bronx in 79 and the Sugar Hill Gang record comes out and, and reignites this stuff. This stuff gets across the Atlantic and it becomes huge in England and even more um, becomes huge in Berlin. And when the wall falls, you know, the sound of the rebels against the communist system had been hardcore punk rock. But when the wall falls... You know, nobody wants to jam the black flag while they're celebrating newfound freedoms. You know, it's just not <laughs> it's not it's not the sound. And this stuff really hits a chord in Germany in a way um, that's just beautiful to me. I, I mean, you know, these these Soul Rebels kids in Detroit who are total misfits with their own community doing this. Weird variant of a regional subculture, you know. I think I think had had this music never been exported, you'd just see techno as this total little footnote at the bottom of another footnote called house, and you'd say, you know, it'd be kind of like DC's go-go music, which had some big impact but never became the big thing. I mean, that a couple of hit singles and LL Cool J did a you know Rock the Bells is based on go-go, but go-go. Was right in there, right in the same period, and didn't get the torch passed in the way that, that techno and house did. And techno goes on to explode uh, all over the world.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting to see what, what does and what doesn't catch. And I think maybe I've always kinda wondered about New York and maybe the reason why so many so it's such a great petri dish for music is because it's such a, a condensed place with so many people that that something can bounce around uh, long enough until it finally kind of starts to get some traction. Well, if you're in a, a smaller scene with less people, if there's like one clique that doesn't like it and it just, just kind of withers away on the vine. Oh, I, I'm not sure exactly how it works with techno, I liked what Kraftwerk said, which was basically that coming in being in Germany at the time felt like you were you were basically having American culture shoved down your throat because they were basically occupied. Uh, and and Techno music to them was like the first new beginning of, of, of a music that was their own. And to a certain degree, I feel like uh, in a couple of different places, it, it just felt like a, a complete repudiation of, of what had come in the past and a move towards the future. And that was kind of what was so exciting about it for everybody. Absolutely. And I want to go back and mention, I had this on my notes, so I forgot to mention when we talked about Kraftwerk, but
1: the German classical rebel the radical classical composer Karl Hans Stockhausen is absolutely the starting point for all the krautrock groups and he had an electronic music studio very early on and and did some of the you know experiments that led people like Kraftwerk to to carry the ball forward and so I I just I just love all these connections you know you've got this this classical avant-garde music that in a lot of senses you know you'll watch um i forget the name of the bbc commentator howard Goodluck or something who does a lot of documentaries on classical music and he's always just trashing the radical classical music of the 20th century for being unlistenable and avant-garde and you know it, it, it really held the music back and blah 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 at the same time without stockhausen there's no craft work. Without craft work, there's no techno. Without techno, there's no EDM, and we wouldn't have modern music as we know it. I'm sure somebody else would have figured out how to do electronic music, but just this chain of events uh, is absolutely fascinating to me, and I love the different threads that come in. Well, let's hear our next song. And this is, I think everybody would agree, one of the definitive techno classics. It's from a New York producer named Joey Beltron. This is Energy Flash. Joey Beltran's Energy Flash and this is one of the tunes that was just an absolute anthem uh, in Berlin in 1990 after the wall fell and it's just I love it that you know you got Kraftwerk takes it from Germany exports their music to Detroit their successors make this music in Detroit it's imitated in New York and it was brought back to Germany Um, just classic but tell us about Energy Flash and why is that a song that you picked out and, and wanted us to feature
2: Well, I figured, uh, you know, with, with this chapter being so much focused on, on, on the origins of Detroit techno, um, you notice in some of those earlier tracks that, that, yeah, the music, uh, you can distinguish between the house and the techno looking back certain elements of it stand out. But I feel like at this point, when you've got energy flash, you see, okay, this is, this is where the tree has grown and the branches have really spread out. And now, now no one's going to mistake house for techno, uh, if if they're paying any kind of attention techno now is its own very specific driving thing. Uh, if it's got a groove, it's very aggressive. It's not funky uh, in the way that house or disco was. And uh, I just thought that uh, that basically to, to show where techno really kind of codifies itself into something into that, into that driving frenzy of dancing that it is now that energy flash is that point where it's, where it's really hit its stride.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you hear energy flash, you know, you're hearing something different. It's not disco. It's not second generation disco. It's a new thing, and that new thing is techno. The book kind of goes on and talks about multiple things that we're going to put off for a
2: little while. They talk about the scene in Belgium, um, the the scene. Belgium in Germany. could have its own chapter because Belgium is is the birth of of so many different things. They take they they take Belgian new beat, which is kind of a slowed down a slowed down version of of of, of dance music, and it really allowed everything to breathe and they put a lot of trance elements into there. So trance kind of comes out of that. And industrial music is also doing a lot of interesting stuff that would also turn into what's considered hard trance. Uh, Belgium is the birthplace for a lot of, a lot of just everything trance wise. So there, that that should have been its own chapter, but we can, we're going to, we're going to stick it in with the Balearic side of things because Balearic is less of a musical style and more of, you know, what they were playing, what they are playing in a certain region, and we can we can pump that all together there. Yeah, absolutely, and and um, and it's gonna. Looking at the next
1: couple chapters, it's gonna take them a while to catch us up to what's been happening in England, and you know we talked about the high energy scene in the early '80s, which turns into you know stock. Aikman and Waterman or whatever and their massive formulaic you know pop success but the dance club scene moves on to this stuff jazz funk and and I don't want to say it loses its way or whatever but it's not going to be it's not on the cutting edge of of dance music let's just put it that way and and then the music kind of gets imported through Ibiza and and so we'll talk about that. But yeah, they, in this chapter, they talk about Goa, which is a, a region in India uh, where a bunch of deadheads of all people had started doing uh, dance music or DJ music on the beaches there in India. And, and this stuff all comes back around. So we'll talk about that stuff more. But talk a little bit more about that second wave of Detroit Tech now, Richie Houghton and the crew in Underground Resistance.
2: Yeah, well, I mean – basically what happened was Richie Houghton uh, is a kid born in born in the UK with uh, with uh, like uh, maker parents, really gadget uh, influenced parents. So he came over uh, and was put in Windsor, which is, you know, I don't want to call it an armpit of Canada, but it's definitely a bit of a boring city with not a hell of a lot going on other than, uh, you know, a whole lot of car manufacturing plants. And uh, so he starts going over to Detroit and checking out the scene over there, and, and 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 is completely blown away with with it, and uh, you know gets into gets into drugs as young kids do. Apparently, Plastic Man comes from the fact that he was laying on the floor. Uh, a kitchen a linoleum kitchen floor on acid and he fused into the floor hence hence the plastic man name but uh, <laughs> you know he did a bunch of acid and then he played around with a lot of gear because his dad allowed him to just uh have a bunch of synthesizers and cool stuff like that and he uh, he he really got into that detroit techno sound and and when when the belleville three were kind of busy they they'd already established themselves. Kevin Saunderson had already had his hits, and they were they were they were they were toast of the town. Richie Houghton was the one that did the the hard work of kind of pushing the underground stuff, along with Underground Resistance, Jeff Mills, Mike Banks, and Robert Hood. Uh, Though it was it was Houghton on one side, kind of catering to maybe uh, the whiter uh, suburban uh, kids and then underground resistance being like uh a, a more of a more of a hardcore group The interesting thing was with underground resistance is that they would they were kind of the beginning of what i would what you would call like the hard techno scene and uh they were putting out some real bangers of stuff you know this is the first time you're starting to hear music getting up around 140 beats per minute and still taking itself very seriously so i can't even imagine what uh what people thought about all of that but you know underground resistance richie hot and all of these guys they were they were pushing the warehouse rave scene in Detroit and they were pushing everything really hard and underground while the Belleville three, it was more of a international sophisticated thing that it kind of turned into, you know, a little bit of that snobbier tip. So I think, uh, you know the second generation gets kind of short shrift in the book which is, which is too bad because they they were really the impetus for what i what i consider more of the the mainstream underground rave portion of the 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 detroit techno history
1: yeah absolutely And underground resistance is kind of like public enemy meets Fugazi. I mean, they're very conscious, they're very anti-corporate um, and, you know, they go on to have this big feud with Sony. I mean, basically d pants Sony in the late 90s when Sony tried to rip off one of their songs and triggered this fan rebellion and, and, you know, got the record company to pull their what they claimed was a cover, but they hadn't actually gotten around to crediting the Underground Resistance with the tune or paying any royalties, but... Um, We'll hopefully if we if we take the series as as far as I'm hoping to, we'll talk more about that second wave when we talk about Simon Reynolds Energy Flash and we talk about Michelangelo Matos. The Underground is massive because both of those groups get tons of coverage in those books. So um, this book doesn't doesn't focus as much. So I wanted wanted to get that in there. And and yeah, it's it's very much to me. Richie Houghton is like until Moby comes along and becomes the face of it um in a commercial sense and then you get these English groups like fat boy slim and stuff to me Richie Houghton was the first guy when I saw white girls who identified themselves as ravers and you know this is before the term EDM was around and they they would tell you about house music and they'd tell you about techno and tell you all the differences Richie Houghton was always the guy that they had a poster of in their office cubicle or whatever at least that was my experience you know and underground resistance, um I didn't hear those same white girls talking about as much as funny, but, but, uh, you know, but they did definitely cut a swath and, and, and were
2: known by those fans. But when you think of, I I just love that underground resistance kind of sets a, sets, sets a bit of a tenor for, for, for the way that rave is anti-authoritarian and it's counterculture. And uh, it's captured very well on this side of uh, of the ocean with underground resistance on the other side with stuff like Atari Teenage Riot and stuff like that. But there's there's always an element of, uh, of you know, FF, F authority, like screw them. Absolutely. Uh, and,
1: it, and it was – I first heard of them when I saw some crusties at a rave. Like I'm at a rave chasing these younger girls and I see some dudes I know because they're crusty punks that I've peripherally involved with in the – Punk scene. <laughs> I go, what are you doing here? You know? And they're the ones that tell me about underground resistance. So yeah, it's, it's, it's just classic stuff. And, and techno, um, I feel like we've done it justice, maybe. I hope so. Anyway, it's a massively important scene. And then, like I said, it's the it's it's the first clean break with disco. This is where the music is is now a new thing. Like house is where the modern era begins. Techno is where the modern era. Re- realizes it's a new era and it yeah. becomes self-aware
2: and now this so- is all origin stuff so and as he said in those other books it'll it'll cover more of of the impact and, and, uh, and basically the scenes that it, that it, that it created, which is really where I kind of, uh, where I existed was, was not so much in these beginning times again, like I was born in 1980. So, so I was, I basically started hearing electronic music, uh, you know, maybe in 91 or something like that. So this is all still before my time, but we're getting up to that point where all of a sudden it's starting to, uh, starting to really resonate with my experiences.
1: Absolutely. And one last thing I want to get in there is that when you listen to a set, a DJ set by any of the Belleville Three, I think that they are more DJs than producers, that you hear their records. Yeah, you know, there's some pretty cool records. But when you hear them doing a set, when you hear Kevin Saunderson or Derek May or can, or Eddie Flag, Folks mixing this stuff, That's how it needs to be heard. It needs to be heard in these multi-hour long sets. And it's just, the the records are just the rough material for the DJ to create the art. That's um, consistent with the theme of the book. So Ryan, as always, it's been a hoot. And next week we'll be back to talk about the difficult to pronounce Balearic? Did I get that right? Balearic or Balearic? Balearic. 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 I got it totally wrong.
2: <laughs> However much you want to throw that second part, but just Balearic is fine. No one, will, no one will crucify you for calling it Balearic.
1: I I've plan to remain uncrucified as long as I can. So we'll be back next time talking about Balearic. And this is continuing our discussion of Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. And for Ryan Hartness. I'm Nate Wilcox. Thanks for listening.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week to continue their discussion of Last Night, a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. They'll be heading to Ibiza to talk about Belliaric music. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheompodcasts dot com. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.